Welcome to the Principal's Office Podcast, where we believe that the principal's job is the most interrupted job on the planet, and creating a clear and cohesive plan is the best way to improve your school. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Miller. I'm the founder of Leaders Building Leaders, and it's my goal each week to introduce you to new strategies and initiatives that are improving schools across the country. You're going to learn leadership principles that are going to help you accelerate your growth, build your teams, and execute on those goals so you can exceed those expectations of the communities that you aim to serve. If you want to learn more about what we do, you can go to our website at lbleaders.com. But for right now, enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is our Inner Circle Expert Monthly Meeting, and I'm really excited because what a critical topic we have uh, today, and what a just really nice human being, actually, I'm going to say, that we have with us. Uh, her name is Sean Straub, and I met her about two months ago when I took over um, this school that I'm at today, Southern Wake Academy, and, and uh, I realized that being in charter school world for the last 10 years now, one area that we typically do not get enough information on and training on being equipped is employment law. And I was saying to myself, you know, the, one of the best and most important trainings that I ever came to was in Raleigh when I was a principal in Brunswick County, a, a charter principal, and it was on employment law. And we had like 100 people in the room and it was so great. It's where I met a few of the DPI lawyers, and they taught me so much that day and pretty much everything that I was doing wrong. Fast forward nine years later, and then I meet Sean, and she reminded me of all the things I was still doing wrong and how I realized that uh, to be a great CEO, you have a good, you need a great understanding of, of, of what you can and what you cannot do in terms of, of human resources. So Sean's company is called Alt HR Partners. And uh, it's really cool because when you work with them, they uh, bring you these amazing goodie boxes uh, that uh, you get. And so I just saw that we had one for Halloween too, uh, you know, Sean. So it's, it's really cool that your orga- organization focuses on organizational health. And uh, I've, I've had a lot of fun uh, talking to you over the last couple of months and learning about what I can and cannot do. And Sean's also a member of our charter school uh, inner circle. So you may or may not know that we've uh, put together a group of charter school vendors that we that we have vetted and we feel really good about and uh, that any school could partner with. Um, so if you're looking for specific vendors, um, we have them in the areas of legal and HR and um, finance and all sorts of areas. But so let me give the floor to Sean and Sean, so let me introduce you. This is our inner circle. So these are about 40 charter school leaders across North Carolina um, that will be hearing you either live or uh, or archived and 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 uh, they're very excited uh, to learn about employment law. It doesn't sound like an exciting um, an exciting topic, but believe me, if you don't understand it, um, you will have a lot of excitement in your life. So go ahead. For the Sean. wrong reasons. <laughs> Thank you so much for the introduction, Tom, and I'm very excited to talk with this group. Um, I've been working with charter schools now um, for the better part of a year, and uh, what I have noticed is that there is definitely a common theme among charter schools and that uh, they can definitely use some additional information on employment law, so I am really excited to share this with you. Um, I 
No. I have spent the last 20 years in human resources working uh, in the corporate world. Um, and I started Alt HR Partners about three years ago. And over the last 20 years, when I was in the corporate world, uh, working for multinational companies in the US, Canada, Puerto Rico, and the UK, I realized that there's a good way and a wrong way to do HR. And so I started Alt HR Partners because I wanted to help people do HR the right the right way. Um, and we do all, everything that we do, we build on this pyramid. And the very bottom of that pyramid is risk mitigation. Um, and that's really what we're talking about today. I apologize if you can hear like a concert behind me. There's some, our office is right above a stoplight and sometimes people really enjoy playing their music very loud. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, we deal with risk mitigation as the base of our pyramid because we feel like if we don't have that in place, then everything on top of it is just going to crumble. Um, so today we're going to talk about those employment laws. We're going to talk about the different ways, impacts that you can make tomorrow uh, if you are not doing them today. So there are a lot of laws out there. Some of them that you know you may be thinking of right now are all the COVID leave laws. I know that for all of our charter school partners, uh, the leave laws are very much at the forefront of what we're dealing with every single day. Um, a lot of our teachers, they don't want to come back into the school. They're worried. They're concerned. They have their own health concerns, childcare concerns, um, and we're all trying to make sure that we're providing for everybody and that we're doing the right thing from a legal perspective. Um, on top of COVID, even before that happened, there were some things that were happening in 2020. Uh, we can all remember back to before a time in 2020 when COVID didn't exist. Um, and two of those big things were about our Form I-9, which is our um, for immigration purposes, ensuring that we have people working for us that are, can legally work in the United States. Um, and since last year, that those audits have increased by 60%. Uh, the reason why I talk about the Form I-9 and one of the first things that I usually talk about is the Form I-9 is because it is one of the few things where the government can literally walk into your building and request access to your papers without there being any kind of complaint. Um, so when we talk about audits being up by 60%, we mean that the government has literally just decided to start auditing businesses, including schools. Um, and then in addition to that, the other thing that often gets overlooked is the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is FLSA, wage and hour lawsuits, people claiming they are not being paid appropriately. And in the last year, that was up by 417%. So these are easy fixes, um, but if we don't fix them, as Tom mentioned, there'll be a lot of excitement in your life and not the good kind. <laughs> um, so there are lots and lots of employment laws um, and no matter how small or large your business is you certainly can be impacted by a lot of them uh, as i mentioned the form i9 a 50 person company was fined one hundred and sixty thousand dollars for having missing information on those i9s um, and then in greensboro which is where i am based the department of labor collected over 3.1 million dollars in penalties and back wages just for flsa violations alone and uh, the eeoc which is a discrimination and harassment they fined last year 139 million dollars to companies for these charges and if you're looking at this thinking 
well, those are businesses and not a school, I promise you, charter schools are not immune. In fact, these are just the top five lawsuits that came up when I simply Googled employment law charter school lawsuits. Um, and you can see that these are some really significant lawsuits, um, whether they are about pay or wrongful termination or discrimination. It's incredibly important that we pay attention to all of these things and that not only are we following the laws, but that as we move forward every single day that we have appropriate policies and procedures in place to ensure that people are being treated equally and fairly. So I mentioned there are a lot of laws and I wasn't kidding. This is a small number of them. Um, and a lot of people feel like some of the smaller locations, some of the, where you don't have a lot of teachers, you may not have to abide by a lot of the laws, but I, I promise you, um, you do. So I'm not gonna go through every single one of these, but for every single employer in the United States, they're impacted by this top line. The first, uh, the EPA is the Equal Pay Act, ensuring that everyone is paid appropriately and equally for the job that they're doing. The FLSA or Fair Labor Standards Act, which not only dictates how people are paid, but it also dictates how we track how people are paid. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that later. OSHA, which everyone should be very familiar with. Um, ERICA, which is the Immigration Reform and Control Act. That's that form I-9, which I certainly am gonna talk about in a little bit. Uh, USERA is about military leave. ERISA is making sure that people are paid properly when they retire. And then the Polygraph Act was passing that no matter how much you may wanna sit down and strap your employees into a polygraph machine, you can't in the United States. <laughs> um, if you have 15 or more people, you're also covered by GINA, which is about genetic information. You're covered by PDA, which is the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. Title VII, which we're gonna talk about in, in detail, which is about the harassment and discrimination. Uh, ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which I'm sure you're all familiar with for multiple reasons. Um, and then once you get to 20 or more people, we wanna deal with COBRA, which is about making sure that if you offer benefits, that you can they have the option of continuing those benefits for health insurance. The Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which makes me feel old every time I look at it, the government has said that if you are 40 years or older, you are protected and you are considered to be old in their eyes and you cannot be discriminated against because of your age. Um, and then we got into our leave laws. So if you have 50 or more employees, not only are you worried about those uh, COVID leave laws, but you also need to really be worried about FMLA because FMLA is one of the more difficult laws that's out there in that it has a lot of rules and regulations and paperwork that's associated with it. And you wanna make sure that if a teacher needs to be out or administrator needs to be out, um, that we're following all the laws and rules that go along with it. And then for our larger schools, we also have to worry about more, but that's only if we're leading people off. Um, and then the EEO1 reporting, which under the Trump administration has certainly been a maze within itself, and I could talk about that for an hour. Um, but EEO reporting, uh, last year they had decided they weren't going to do it, then they decided they were going to do it, and then it was due twice. So if you have 100 or more people working for you, you want to make sure you understand the EEO1 report, which basically is you need to tell the government the type of people that are working for you, what kinds of jobs they have, 
um, as well as their ethnicity and other things that they bring to the table. So obviously that's a lot. We're not gonna talk about all of it today. Uh, today we're just gonna talk about these five laws. Um, and my goal is of course to talk to you about all of them. Um, however, I put them in, in order. So if we run out of time uh, and you do have additional questions or you wanna hear more about it, my contact information is at the end, but also Tom certainly has my contact information and I would be happy to have a conversation with you about it. Um, but the very first thing we're going to talk about uh, is Title VII, which is the anti-discrimination law. Um, Title VII was passed back in 1964, and I like to call it the grandfather of all uh, discrimination lawsuits. And since it was passed back in 1964, it has had a lot, a lot of add-ons. So the original uh, Civil Rights Act passed in 1964 only protected based on race, color, national origin, sex, and religion. And back then when they said sex, they meant male or female. Now, what has happened since then is this. <laughs> um, so since that it was passed in 1964, there have been a lot of lawsuits saying that it was not generous enough and needed to protect uh, for additional reasons. And some of those reasons, there were additional laws that were passed, and sometimes it was more about the interpretation of the original law. So one of the things that I really like, the excitement in my life about employment law, is that it's not necessarily about the law that was passed as much as it is about the lawsuits that have happened since the law was passed. Um, so this is inclusive of all of the lawsuits that may have been passed as well as additional laws that have been added onto Title VII. Um, and when we talk about these protected classes, what we're talking about is reasons why you cannot harass or discriminate against somebody. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about harassment or discrimination, but I wanted to go through what those federal protected classes are, as well as what the North Carolina state protected classes are. And you'll notice that there is a, a difference. And as we go through it, uh, what's important to remember is that whatever is more inclusive is what the employee gets. So if federal is a more inclusive protected class, even if North Carolina itself doesn't protect it, then the employee gets whatever federal protections are. Okay. Does anyone have any questions so far? I can just shout them out. Hey, Sean, there was a quick question if you just wanna go back about um, how do we know if we file the I-9 into fully on the E-Verify website? Is there a... Um... Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to answer that now. We are gonna talk a little bit more about I-9s later, but on the E-Verify website, there's actually an audit feature, and you can see exactly what you have already filed um, through the audit feature. And if you haven't filed something, you can utilize that audit feature, um, and you can go back and you can file. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about federal and state protected classes. So under the first, so first is race, uh, race and color, self-explanatory, protected the same North Carolina and federally. 
Um, for federal protected classes, you'll notice that there's religion and creed, and in North Carolina, we're only protecting religion. Um, so there is a little bit of a difference between religion and creed. Religion is something that's established, like church, like um, being Catholic, being Jewish, whereas creed is a sincerely held religious belief. So if your employee comes to you and says that they need time off, because uh, they belong to the Church of Body Modification and they need to go get their annual piercing, um, instead of sort of saying, no, that's definitely not something that we're gonna give you time off for, it's important to actually sit down with them and have a discussion with them because it could be that uh, that is a sincerely held religious belief and we wanna make sure that we're giving them an accommodation um, or that we're not discriminating against them because of it. Um, national origin and ancestry. So national origin is just where the person is from, like me individually, where I'm from, whereas ancestry is where all of my relatives are from, back forever. Um, sex, age, same, physical or mental disability. Uh, genetic information. So this one is interesting in that a lot of times people feel that if they aren't in a hospital setting or a doctor's office, there's no way they can have someone's genetic information. When uh, the reality is genetic information is really easy to come by. So if your employee tells you that their you know, father just had a heart attack or was diagnosed with um, Alzheimer's or ALS, you now have some genetic information on that person that within their family history, there, uh, there is uh, Alzheimer's or ALS or something like that. And so you want to be really careful with that information that you have. Um, citizenship. So if the person is actually a U.S. citizen, uh, military status or service, so whether they are currently in the military or they were in the military. And then North Carolina has a couple interesting ones. We protect specifically against AIDS, HIV, sickle cell anemia, and the hemoglobin C trait. And then we have a really super interesting one, which I think will get really more interesting. Um, if marijuana becomes legal, we have a very special law that says you cannot hold someone accountable at work for the lawful use of a lawful product while they're not at work. So the way that that was originally designed was twofold. One was for the tobacco industry. So um, there was a time when healthcare providers were starting to say that uh, you couldn't be part of our healthcare plan unless you weren't a smoker or businesses were trying to opt in saying that you can only enroll in our healthcare plan if you're a smoker, if you're not a smoker, sorry. And North Carolina said that's really not gonna work here in the tobacco capital of the world. So you can't use that against people. Um, same thing with alcohol. You can't say that somebody can't go to a bar and drink at night um, as long as when they come to work, they're not under the influence. So, um, which is all well and good, however, if marijuana were to become illegal, and we are currently doing drug screens for people, uh, you know, as part of a good hiring process, um, and we do find marijuana in, you know, as part of the drug screen, it could get sticky in the future. So it's just one of those things to sort of 
make yourself aware of as we move forward. Um, it definitely didn't happen this election cycle, but uh, in the future, it's definitely something we want to be aware of. Okay, anyone have any questions on our protected classes? So why do we care about these protected classes? Um, and we care about them because if we treat people differently because of them, then it can be a significant loss for us. Um, and one of the ways that we do we possibly do that is through harassment. Um, so there are actually two kinds of harassment. There's the quid pro quo harassment, which is the this for that. I like to just call that the mad men harassment, uh, where you're asking for something for something else. Like uh, if you go out on this date with me, you're going to get a much better review. Um, and then a hostile work environment. So a hostile work environment is actually the much more common type of harassment in 2020. And it is also easier for, for us to allow to happen. So quid pro quo was really like, came, came into the height of its being in the 1980s when women uh, were starting to enter the workforce in droves after the 70s. And it was really about unwelcome sexual advances or requests for sexual favors um, ba based on a, a tangible and positive employment in return. So that one's pretty easy for us to spot. Hostile work environment, however, is a little bit more difficult. So you can have a hostile work environment from a sexual harassment perspective. Uh, someone keeps asking someone else out on a date, they keep making inappropriate comments, things along those lines, but it can also be that it creates an intimidating uh, atmosphere or even an offensive atmosphere. So I like to use the example of um, like, this could be, super old school, but like mechanics used to have those like pinup girl uh, calendars up and people could find that really offensive. And so if there was someone working in that environment that found that offensive and said, I want you to take that down and they refused to take it down, that could actually be a hostile work environment. So it could be seemingly okay for some people and not okay for other people. Um, and that's where hostile work environment gets tricky because hostile work environment is in the eye of the beholder in most instances. So if someone is complaining about anything, it is absolutely their best course of action to do a full investigation and to understand what is making them uncomfortable. Because if there is something that is making them uncomfortable in any way, then we absolutely want to make sure that we fix that moving forward. Because uh, the worst thing that can happen is if we just allow people to continue on in an environment where they are feeling intimidated or they do feel like something is offensive to them or they are bothered by something that's happening within their environment. As soon as we stop it, we also stop the um, damages and any potential lawsuits. So it's really important that we take advantage of the opportunity if somebody comes forward with a complaint that we do our best not only to investigate it, but uh, to stop it moving forward. Okay. Hey, Sean. Yes. There's a question back there about the alcohol piece. And I think the harassment, you know, part kind of, you know, falls in there. Um, what if they're not using alcohol on like the premises, but they're constantly hungover, like you just feel like they're just not like, is that 
how would that be handled? So that's a really interesting question. Hungover is a little bit different than under the influence. Um, but if they're hungover, I'm assuming the reason that you know they're hungover is because they're not performing appropriately. And that's really where I would focus that, uh, that conversation. So I would focus it more on what they're not doing as opposed to the fact that they may be hungover for some reason, or we may be, be making an assumption that they're hungover. Now, if they smell like alcohol, that's a different story. Um, if they're not coming to work properly groomed uh, or clean because they have this odor of alcohol, like that's a, that's a different story. But um, hungover, I think I would address that more on their current behavior as opposed to the effects of the alcohol. Um, so discrimination, so back to all those things that we just talked about, all of those protected classes. So discrimination is any kind of treatment or consideration uh, in favor or against a person, group, class, category, based on one of those things that we are, one of those protected classes rather than their individual merit. So you've decided that anyone with ancestry from Italy gets promoted and nobody else gets that. So you're making a very distinct, uh, you're discriminating against everyone who isn't from Italy and you're giving everyone from Italy this preferential treatment. Uh, and obviously that's usually not how discrimination works. Um, it is usually based on things like race, it's based on the color of someone's skin, it's based on someone's uh, sex, gender, or sexual orientation. Um, and so for this, there are, there are also two kinds of discrimination. Um, the main kind that we're going to talk about is stating or suggesting a preferred candidate in the job advertisement, uh, excluding potentially qualified employees during recruitment, denying certain employees compensation or benefits, paying equally qualified employees different salaries or issuing promotions or layoffs for non-business reasons. Um, and that is disparate treatment. So that's when you're overtly doing something based on a person's protected class. And in most instances, I like to think that this is not the kind of discrimination that we have within our environment. That's when you have probably malicious intent and you're doing something on purpose. Whereas disparate impact usually occurs without malicious intent. And it's when you have policies or practices that you probably think are very fair. Um, however, they could have a discriminatory impact on members of a certain protected class. So saying that someone has to speak English um, for you know, a specific job requirement, uh, that could have a disparate impact on a group of employees, or I should say, sorry, English as a first language, um, could have a disparate impact on a group of people who maybe English isn't their first language, but they can communicate just as well as anyone who English was their first language. So it's just really important that we're making sure that whatever policies and procedures we have and whatever it is that we're doing, that we're treating everybody as fairly and equally as possible and that when we do make decisions, we're making them for business reasons that we can back up later. So whenever we make these tough decisions, I always like to think sort of two years ahead. If I was standing in front of a judge or a jury, what would I tell that judge or jury? Would I be able to have the business reasons why we made these 
we made these decisions as opposed to whatever it is that the person may be claiming that uh, we made the decisions. Any other questions on Title Seven? There's a question about uh, political stance to an extreme, uh, yeah, to an extreme on social media. Sorry, did you say social media? Yes. Yep. What about a, a political stance to an extreme on social media, or I guess anywhere really? Okay. So social media has a different answer than in person in school. <laughs> um, so politics didn't used to be this complicated. <laughs> um, and it didn't used to be something that you wanted to make sure nobody talked about while they were at school. Um, but it is perfectly within your right to tell people that uh, while they're while they're working, while they're on school, that you, you don't want to have them talk about politics because it is a really inflammatory topic right now. And it's okay to tell people that we're not gonna talk about politics at school. Social media is different. Um, so a while ago, the government passed several laws about freedom of speech um, and the unions, got together and they uh, are protecting all employees, even if your school is not unionized for their freedom of speech, especially on social media. So there's very little that you can do if somebody is posting on social media, unless it is inflammatory or degrading towards a specific group or individual um, or towards you or your school. So if somebody posts on social media that, you know, they're, um, one way or the, I'm not even going to let on which side I'm on, but like if, if they post on social media, you know, what, whatever political statements that they want to post, uh, there's actually really little that you can do unless they're posting things that are racist, that um, are inciting violence, things along those lines, then you can take some kind of action on it, um, up to and including termination of employment. So, and that has certainly, there is a lot of precedent for that. But uh, unless they cross that line, there is actually very little that you can do from that for their personal account, sharing their personal feelings or, or their personal political. Uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about that Form I-9. So hopefully everybody is aware of what the Form I-9 is. Form I-9 is uh, the document that all employees need to fill out at least uh, within three days of hire. It's where they have to bring in documentation that proves that they are able to work in the United States. So like their birth certificate and their driver's license or their passport, our driver's license and social security card, something that proves who they are and proves that they can work in the US. Um, and the law that um, is the umbrella for this is called ERICA or the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And you may be more familiar with it uh, for, the for the area of the government that controls it, which is ICE, uh, which we've all seen on the news. So back in 1986, the government passed ERICA, and since 1986, they have said that anyone who is hired needs to prove not only who they are, but that they're able to work in the United States. Um, 
And in North Carolina, we have a law that says if you have 20 or more employees, not only do they have to fill out this form, but that you also need to use E-Verify, which someone had asked about earlier. So not only do they fill out the paper form, but then you do need to go into the government website and you need to enter their information again uh, to make sure that the person's social security number is a match to who they are. Um, and then you need to keep all of that information. So um, with form I-9, so with Form I-9, there are a couple things about it that are really important. One is you need to keep all of those forms on site for a period of uh, the entire employment and then up to three years after the person has left. You want to make sure that you keep those forms in a separate location than the employment files. Uh, and there are a couple reasons for that. One is if the government were to come knock, knock, knocking at your door and say, I want to see those forms I-9, you wanna be able to like hand them this binder or this file that has just the I-9 forms in it. As I mentioned, um, ICE is one of the few areas of the government that's allowed to come into your business without there being some kind of complaint about you. So they can just randomly choose you and come in. And the last thing that we want when someone from the government comes in is to give them information that we don't necessarily need to give them. So we keep this in a separate location. Um, it's also easier for us to make sure that we're keeping up to date on the forms because not only do they fill them out when they start, but if they have something that expires on it that proves that they can work in the US, we need to update it. So expirations on identity doesn't count. So we don't have to update it every time like their driver's license expires. But if they have like a, um, some type of visa or anything along those lines and that expires, then we also wanna make sure that we're updating the forms every time that they have a new visa. Um, so we have that. This is some statistics that I pulled uh, from last year. So um, last year ICE, did over almost 7,000 worksite investigations. So those are the ones where they just randomly go in to people. Um, ICE likes to arrest people as well. Um, and they're not just arresting the people who are working illegally. Uh, last year, they arrested over 2,000 people who were employing illegal workers. Um, and then uh, they do, there's a lot of fines on, on the 499. The 499, believe it or not, has 1,500 laws that are rules that are associated with it. And for every single one of those rules, you can do it wrong. So the total number of fines last year was $14 million. Um, and the number one audit concern when they go in are companies who are required to but do not use E-Verify. So there are some states where E-Verify is completely optional. Unfortunately, North Carolina is not one of them. So 20 or more people, we also need to be utilizing E-Verify. Um, and we had a question earlier about audits through E-Verify. They're super easy to do. You can go through, you can see how many people are entered. And if you've never signed up for E-Verify, no need to panic. Uh, you can sign up now for E-Verify. You can sign all the forms. You can get it set up. And then you just enter people moving forward. Um, if you signed up for E-Verify when your school first started 10 years ago and then forgot about it and didn't use it, 
no worries, that's an even better situation um, because you can use that audit function to go back in time and you can enter people um, who have been hired in that gap period. Okay, any questions on that? I just learned about the E-Verify from Sean <laughs> this year and uh, I'm, I'm still sad to say we haven't put it in place yet here. It'll get done this week, Sean, I promise. Okay, we're here. We're here when you're ready. <laughs> yeah, I9s is like my, my stickler thing that I, um, and it's my stickler thing for two, two reasons. One is that there's no notice and the government can just come and show up um, and you don't have to, there's basically like harassment discrimination, like you probably know those complaints might be coming because you had an unhappy employee leave. I-9, there's, there's no notice. And it's really expensive um, and really easy to do wrong. So even if you're doing it, it's really easy to do wrong. And that's my, my top 10 most common mistakes, which is just another kind of look into that 1,500 rules portion of it. So on the form I-9, you'll, you'll see like, they ask for all kinds of things like apartment number, middle initial. You can actually get dinged if you leave those fields blank. So every field is supposed to be filled in. If there is no apartment number or no middle initial, you're supposed to write NA in that box. And if you don't, the government can actually ding you for that. Um, if you use a different name, so using nicknames instead of you know, your, your given name, uh, not selecting eligibility status. So that's not saying, uh, so most people who fill it out are like, of course I'm a US citizen. I'm not gonna check this little box that says one US citizen, so it gets left blank. So that's one. Um, at the, on the bottom of the first page, there's a section to say that you didn't have a translator prepare it for you. A lot of people are like, of course I didn't do that. So they don't check that box. That's another one. Uh, no date or the wrong date on the signature. A lot of times people backdate um, or they get confused and they think that they're supposed to put, I've seen everything from like their birth date to all kinds of weird dates in there. Um, so that's on there. Um, on the second page of the form at the very top, you have to again write the employee's full name as well as their um, citizenship status and oftentimes that line is missed because on the second page what we think we're filling in only is um, information from the documents that the person's giving us so we miss that very top line. Um, they're very picky about making sure that your identification is in the right list and that it's from the right issuing agency. So depending on when you were born, your social security card could be from different issuing agencies. So um, you wanna make sure that you're doing that correctly. Same thing with your passport. Uh, passports are from the United States Department of State. A lot of people just put USA on there. So you wanna make sure that that's all correct. Um, accepting an expired document. You can accept an expired document if it's proving identification. So an expired driver's license is okay, but expired visa is not okay. And actually an expired passport is also not okay because a passport is proving not only your identity, but also your ability to work in the, the US. So it's really important. And then again, not re-verifying employees. So if something were to be, um, Oh, employee is gone. Uh, so if something uh, is expired, it's really important that we go back and we check it again. Did you have a question, Tom? 
Yeah, there's a couple questions in the chat box. You uh, looks like you hit a, a sore spot, which I knew this this part would. <laughs> so there's one question: uh, Does a, does a doing a background check take the place of e-verify? No, no, because it's a completely separate thing, right? I mean, you know, the e-verify is is verifying that you're an eligible employment agency, correct? So E-Verify is actually a government website that's verifying uh, the person's social security number and that the person is who they say that they are. Mm -hmm. And then there's a question, uh, if you have E-Verify and a digital system, do you have to have the paper copies? So do you keep the paper copy in the personnel file or? No. So if you have a completely digital I-9 system, like, um, so ADP has an integrated I-9 and E-Verify, that's great. Um, they, you do not have to keep both of them. Um, if you are genuinely have that, be warned, however, that the government does not accept electronic versions of an I-9. So if the government were to come to your door, you would have to print out all of those I-9s. Um, the other thing that you want to be aware of when you're, when you're talking about electronic versions is are you keeping copies of the documentation that people are showing you? So if you are keeping, you want to just be consistent. Um, either you're keeping all the documentation that somebody has given for, for all employees or you're keeping none of it. Um, we highly recommend that you keep all of it. And sometimes with electronic systems, there isn't that option. So you just want to, you just want to be careful with that. Um, keeping it is an insurance policy for you or if you do get audited, so that way you have a copy of what it is that the employee provided to you. And is there a minimum size of your business to have to have you verify? 20 people. So, okay, so less than 20, you do not need it. You don't need it. You don't need it. need it, no, okay. not in North Carolina. Got it, all right. Any other? Those mind? are the only questions that were in the chat box, but anybody's okay. able to ask anything. Are you, are you going to talk a little bit about like, like the current FMLA under COVID stuff? I was not going to talk about that. Okay, that's no. fine. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about FLSA. Um, a lot of people are, have sort of a misconception about the Fair Labor Standards Act in that uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act just talks about whether someone's an exempt employee or a non-exempt employee. Um, it actually covers a whole bunch of other stuff, and I think it's really important for us to know what that other stuff is. Um, exempt versus non-exempt isn't necessarily something that we worry too much about with uh, school systems, except if we're talking about the administrative roles in the office. Um, but it's still really important because there are other things that we really need to think about. Um, we want to make sure that we're paying minimum wage um, and exempt minimum wage. So regular minimum wage is only $7.25 an hour. North Carolina adopts the federal minimum wage. So federal minimum wage is $7.25. North Carolina is $7.25. But our exempt minimum wage is um, 30, 30, oh my gosh, I had it in my head and then I forgot it as soon as I started talking. $35,568. So for all of your teachers, you want to make sure that they're making at least $35,568. Otherwise, they would not count as an exempt employee. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and you also want to be sure that for your non-exempt employees, so for people who you're paying hourly, you're not paying at a salary rate, um, or who may not meet the requirements like custodians, bus drivers, people who might be working in the central office, that um, they are keeping track of their time and that you're paying them time and a half if they're working over 40 hours a week. And the record keeping part is really what I wanted to hit on with the FLSA because I think that's the important part that um, especially with the charter schools, we wanna make sure that we're doing. So for record keeping, we wanna keep at least five years of time cards on site for any employee, because if somebody were to claim that they weren't paid correctly, the government can go back three years to look at all of your timesheets and everything and all your payroll records. But if they feel like you purposely may have done something that was a little shady, they can go back five. So at all times, we want to have five years worth of payroll records, um, which includes people writing down, I worked this many hours each week, like keeping a time card in whatever way that works for you. If you have time clocks, if you have um, like a computer system, whatever that is, just so that way, if somebody were to ask you, you know, how many hours did this person work, you can feel confident in the documentation that you hand over. Okay. Any questions on FLSA? I'll tell you what, everybody. This is where I got, well, our school got sued like massively because we had a, um, an office manager who, she was a front office, you know, person who was being asked to like start the phone chains at, you know, you know, 5 a.m. if school was canceled or make, you know, calls at night. And she was logging all that. And when she was no longer working for us, we owed tens of thousands of dollars she was tracking all that time. So there is a question, if you can, uh, uh, three here. So one, going back to the E-Verify, would 20 employees include substitutes? And that's probably no, right? So if it's a, is it full-time employees, part-time employees? Yeah, it's 20 full-time equivalents. So a couple substitutes may, may make a full-time employee. All right. Uh, is the 35,000 for certified uh, teachers only? Because that, because that would, uh, or serves that any full-time employee less, or it's, it's any full-time exempt employee can't make less than thirty-five thousand, right? That's correct. Yeah, any full-time employee that you're paying as a salary, so okay. you're not making them track anything, you don't pay them overtime. Um, not only do they have to make that thirty-five five sixty-eight, but they also have to meet the exemption test, um, which can be complicated. Um, so like a, a janitor, for example, no matter how much money they're being paid, they will never meet the exemption test because um, the majority of their job is manual labor. Right. In like 60 seconds or less, how would you best describe exempt versus non-exempt? I know that's probably hard, but... Okay. Um, so uh, exempt versus non-exempt. So an exempt employee uh, has to meet a, a few level, uh, has to meet a few things. One, they have to be making the right amount of money. So 35,568. Two, they have to have uh, authority over people, places, or things. So they have to be basically in charge of their own environment. Okay, another really loud part. Um, so they have to be in charge of a budget. They have to be in charge of other people. 
um, they have to have independence in their job. Um, so those are really like the, the big hitters as far as an exempt employee. Uh, they also have to be doing mostly administrative work. So at least 50% of their work needs to be administrative based work. So there are a lot of exceptions to being an exempt and non-exempt employee. And this is dictated not just by the Fair Labor Standards Act, but it's dictated by the Internal Revenue Service. Um, and they work together to try to help people understand how this, how this works. Um, but uh, in general, there's what we call the executive, um, executive, it's a, a, sorry, executive exemption, those words would not come out together, and the administrative exemption, which is what the majority of people who work within your school would be under. Um, however, there are certainly people within your school that would not fall into those categories. So it's really important that you would look at each job individually um, and make sure that you understand what the exemption might be for that position. Yep, it's a tough one. I mean, I like the way you explained about they manage something, they're over something. So your finance officer is exempt, but your front office, you know, um, your front desk person would not be. So, um, how many years should we keep personnel files after they resign or are terminated? How many years? Keep so that is an interesting question. Um, and sometimes it depends. So at a very minimum, we say five years. But if there's any kind of uh, workers comp or OSHA, then we say indefinitely because workers comp, OSHA, Americans with Disabilities Act, they can go back basically indefinitely for all of your employees. Whereas um, a regular employee, the maximum amount of time that you would ever have to go back into their records is five years. All right, and then the last one says, we have a few employees that will, will be going out on unpaid leave. Is there a policy about cutting benefits for an employee who's on unpaid leave? Or should the employee pay for benefits just like the FMLA allows? Yeah, so that's a really complicated question and it depends a lot on what your school's policies are. Um, so, it would be difficult for me to answer that one. But if that person wants to give me a call, I'm happy just to have a conversation with them and talk to them about it. Yeah, that's probably the best. That's a tough one for sure. So, yep. Yeah. All right. Good, Sean, is there anything else that you got for okay. us? Okay. Yeah, I wanna, let me see what else. You know, we don't have a lot of time. We can skip the Age Discrimination Employment Act. I'll talk briefly about Americans with Disabilities Act just because it is um, so pervasive in our society, especially now with COVID. So um, as you're all aware with COVID leaves, um, you know, most of them only give people two weeks off of work. Some of us have more than 50 employees. So we also have FMLA, but even if you don't have more than 50 employees, um, you may want to consider giving people a leave of absence as an accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and uh, it's just, it's a really complicated law that I just wanted to make you as aware of as possible in a short period of time. <laughs> um, that was, okay. Yeah, so uh, the American Dis Dis Disabilities Act 
is basically designed to give people an accommodation so that way if they have a physical or mental impairment, they're able to continue working the same as they would as anybody else who may not have that same physical or mental impairment. When the ADA was first passed, um, they were really broad in what that meant. So basically what they said is it's designed to protect people with a major life, uh, that's um, with a disability that impacts a major life activity. And at the time, I think that what they had in mind was probably like the ability to work, uh, mobility, things along those lines. But the reality is over time, there have been a lot of lawsuits that have really expanded what a disability looks like. Everything from um, infertility being a disability all the way through um, uh, you know, things that are more common, like mental illness. So it's basically anything that's going to impact someone for a long period of time. And if somebody were to ever come to you and say that they'd like an accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act, or maybe they don't use those exact words, but that's the feeling that you're getting, uh, it is a really complicated back and forth process. And I would highly recommend that you take a partner with your attorney um, or with someone like me who can help you step through that process so that way you make sure that you're on the right side of that equation when it's all over. Um, what we're finding a lot, and the reason why I definitely wanted to bring it up before we ended, is because of COVID that people are utilizing the leaves of absences that they've been given by the government um, or they're requesting things like, I need to work from home because of X, and that X becomes something that's under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and we need to go through that interactive process with them. Excellent. Hey, Sean, there, there's a follow-up that says, if an employee has exhausted their pay time off and takes additional time, can they still be required to do their lesson plans and grading even though they're not working? So that's another complicated one. Um, under the, if it's FMLA time, if it's under FMLA, you're actually prohibited from contact, having contact with the employee while they're out on an FMLA leave. So that's the easy answer. Uh, the more complicated answer is it really depends on the precedent that you've had at your school and uh, what you've done in the past and what you plan to do moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. And there was one more question about the exempt and non-exempt, and I know it's hard to, you know, sometimes understand. And I think the best way, everybody, that I have tried to figure it out is if you're responsible for someone, I heard Sean say, right? So if you actually supervise somebody, so that could be students, it could be other staff, then you would be an exempt employee. If you don't supervise anyone or anything in terms of like what she mentioned with the budget um, or transportation, maybe even. Uh, then you are a non-exempt employee and you shouldn't be working more than 40 hours a week, which is really 37 and a half, right? I mean, if they have a paid lunch per day or like a paid 30 day or uh, 30 minutes off. Yeah, again, that depends on the school and what they're, yeah. they're offering. <laughs> That's right. So, so one of the reasons I wanted Sean on here is, you know, because when I took over the school that I'm currently, um, you know, interim uh, uh, principal at, is that I didn't want to have to answer all the really hard questions and I needed someone who could be consistent. And you know, you know, remember we normally write the policies after the emergency has occurred. And so that's why Alt HR Alt HR Partners was so, you know, important as we were going through the FLMA work, they did everything. I mean, they've handled every case, 
They took every, all the paperwork, they made all the decisions, and then they told us leadership, here's what they can and cannot do. And that really just made you know, decisions easy for us at the plant. I know that's just a small part of the work that they do, but they've been writing job descriptions for us. They will do exit interviews, um, all of those things that are really important to the organizational health uh, that you need to understand and to number one, keep you out of trouble. So, um, and so there's one more question. So uh, Natalie asked about a teacher assistant who sometimes supervises that children. Teacher assistant would be a non-exempt employee. They would be someone who works 40 hours pretty much no matter what, because they don't need a college degree to do it. And, um, and the stipulations are different. Yeah, right. in most instances, teacher assistants would be non-exempt employees. Excellent. So is there any other questions uh, for Sean? Because I want Sean to be able to also promote herself and I'll make sure that we send the recording out uh, the link to her company and her uh, personal email. And I've already privately sent a couple of you her email address who had some really good questions that I don't think she could answer in a webinar. It just needs a lot more thinking and processing. But so, but go ahead, Sean, why don't you, why don't you uh, finish this off here? And, and um, we want to thank you for your time, so. Absolutely. Well, it was my pleasure speaking with you. And if there were more questions that we weren't able to answer today, or they're super specific, um, and we need to talk in more depth, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I'm happy to have a conversation with you. Um, and we're happy to talk to you about what's happening in your school. And if there was a question or something that you thought I was going to talk about today, and I didn't talk about it at all, um, I'm more than happy to talk about that too. If you couldn't tell, I love talking about employment law and would probably do it all night uh, if I didn't have a time limit. So um, please feel free to reach out with any questions or concerns. I always say I'd rather have people call me a hundred times than go to bed with a question on their mind. So please don't hesitate to give me a call. Yeah. Excellent, Sean. And hold on a sec because, you know, I just want to echo those. Like I was thinking about you know, at will contracts, I mean, they're really not at will. I mean, let's, you know, be honest, there's been lots of, lots of schools that have thought that that's the case and it's not necessarily the case. I mean, you know, this is a, a known and an unknown. And as a charter school principal, you're a CEO of a multi-million dollar organization. You're not just a school principal and these things you need to understand. So, um, so I'm gonna say thank you, Sean, for giving us an hour of your time. Um, and, and there is one, one more question in here, if you don't mind giving us a 60 more seconds, huh? They said, uh, what did you say about all teachers and staff that are afraid to come to the building due to COVID? You had a, like a specific comment. Um, not sure exactly what I said, but uh, my thing would be be careful. <laughs> uh, basically, we have been, we work with several charter schools and most of the charter schools that we work with, a lot of the teachers are worried about coming back to work. And we have been working individually with each teacher to try to determine if indeed they do have a legitimate reason not to come back to work um, and that they need some kind of accommodation or leave of absence. But the important part there is that you need to work with each teacher individually and that you can't make blanket statements. Um, so it is really important to have those those difficult conversations and really dig in and make sure that you get all your medical documentation and that you're treating everybody with as much empathy and compassion as you can while still ensuring that your business is running. Yep, excellent. Well, thanks again, Sean. So one more time, if you want to reach out to uh, Sean and her team, and her team is great. Oh my gosh, they almost uh, give me 24-7 uh, access, but 
It's uh, alt is a l t h r partners dot com. Alt h r partners dot com, and Sean's email is s h a w n at alt h r partners dot com. So reach out, and I'll make sure they forward all of her contact information to all of you. And thanks again for giving us this extra hour today. Thanks everybody. Have a great day. Have a great day.